All right, well, good morning again. We're glad you're here. Uh, for those of you who are watching at home, I hope you guys are all doing well. Uh, we're continuing our series on the apocalyptic visions of the prophets, uh, these pictures of reality from God's perspective. And I want to begin this morning by reading you a quote uh, about a recent TV show that did not end well. Some of you might be able to guess which show I'm talking about from this quote or just from that description generally. But a critic wrote, what many people don't understand is that stories aren't just pieces of entertainment. In a story, it doesn't matter what your background is. You can still overcome impossible obstacles. Stories like these can inspire you to do the same. That's why such a terrible ending hurt so much. Now, this quote is from an article about the massive hit Game of Thrones, uh, this show that ended a, a few years ago. And as you guys know, Game of Thrones was this cultural phenomenon. Uh, everyone was watching it. It was a big deal. I didn't watch it, but a lot of people were. And the story ended so poorly that it changed the way people thought about the show, it changed the way people perceived the entire series. Because people hated this ending. They were disappointed, they felt let down, even betrayed. And this really is the stakes for any good story. Ending well is so important. Because as we dive into a story, we become invested in the characters, we live vicariously through them, we find inspiration in their journeys, and so how things end really matters to us. If you think about some of the stories that really stick with us, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Harry Potter, they're defined by these great, epic, satisfying endings. They tie up the loose ends, bring closure to important themes, and most importantly, they give resolution to the main characters. They're satisfying, comforting, and encouraging. And so if an ending has so much important for these great works of fiction, how much more important is it for the story of Scripture, for this larger story of God and us and our world? We're invested in this story in much more tangible ways because it's our story, because we are some of the main characters in this story. And so how God ties up the loose ends brings resolution is really important for us. It should be. And one of the most important parts of biblical apocalypse, of these visions that we've been looking at, these visions from books like Daniel and Revelation and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel, they're important because they tell us how the story will end. They assure us that we are headed for a good ending and they give us confidence to stay invested in the story. And so as we finish up the series, both today and next week, uh, we want to look at some passages that are really explicitly about this end, that tell us how our story, how God's story, is going to finish. We want to get a broad sense of what God is going to do and sort of what this is going to look like, as far as we can tell. But more important than that, we want to consider how this impacts our lives today, how it impacts our individual stories. And so we're going to be looking at some pretty 
heavy, challenging passages. I'm guessing that when you think about the end times, when you think about prophecy and apocalypse, this is probably some of the stuff that, that comes to mind uh, when you first think about it. Uh, and for some of you, if you've never studied this before, I'm just going to be honest, it's a little bit out there. It's different. Uh, it's a lot to take in. And so we're going to do our best today to wade through some of the craziness, some of the symbolism, some of the imagery, and as always, focus on the big picture. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and jump in in a second, and we're going to be looking today at the book of Daniel. And Daniel is by far the most apocalyptic book in the Old Testament. Daniel's book is comprised almost mostly of visions and of these visions of the end, of the divine reality. And so today we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7, and this is really what I would describe as probably the most concise picture of the timeline of the end times. It's one chapter that gives us an overall sense of what God is going to do throughout history and in our overall story. And so we're going to look at this, this uh, chapter. The first half is a vision or a dream that Daniel has. And in the second half, he's given an interpretation by this divine messenger. And so let's go ahead and read it. We're, we're going to look at Daniel, who is writing this chapter from the exile in Babylon. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four beasts, each different from the others, came out from the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up from among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes, like, had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A fire, river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts were stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. 
In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. So I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And you know, there really are moments where the apocalyptic visions feel more like the Lord of the Rings than the actual Bible. But keep in mind, there is a purpose to all this imagery. The details do matter, and they're communicating important truth. But this genre serves a specific purpose. The emphasis really is on the tone and the emotion of what we're reading. God wants us to feel the weight of this truth and remember it. In a way, these really are kind of like science fiction and fantasy stories, communicating truth in a really fantastic way. So what is this vision about? Before we get into the details, I want to focus on kind of the, the, the big picture framework of what Daniel is describing. In the most basic sense, Daniel is providing us, as I said, with a timeline for the end times. He's almost giving us a roadmap for what to expect historically for how this story is going to play out. And so he begins with these four great beasts. He says each one comes up out of the sea, one after the other. 
Unfortunately for us, in verse 17, he tells us clearly what these beasts represent. He says, the four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. And it's pretty well agreed upon that these four beasts that Daniel's talking about, these four kingdoms, are the four major powers of the ancient world. First, you had Babylon, then Persia, or Medo-Persia. After that came Greece, and then Rome. Uh, if you study a history book, those powers are the ones that really kind of dominated the ancient Near East at the time of Daniel and the Old Testament and New Testament world. And Daniel gives details about each beast that kind of clearly points us to these conclusions that it's these particular kingdoms. Uh, one example is the third beast, this winged leopard with four heads. And Greece was really known uh, for the speed of its conquest. You remember the character Alexander the Great, and he took over the whole world super fast, faster than it had ever been done before. And so this image of a leopard, a fast animal with wings, another image that we've seen in scripture that represents speed, that seems to be connected to Greece. Not only that, it says that this leopard has four heads. Immediately after Alexander's death, the kingdom was split up into four parts, ruled over by four different rulers. And so this is just an example of how Daniel gives us kind of an accurate picture of these different kingdoms that would arise. And the importance of this for us is that it helps us to see that there is truth in some of this predictive prophecy. That Daniel isn't just kind of making stuff up, but that this is something that God has revealed about the future. And the fact that we can confirm some things that came true in our past tells us something about Daniel's prophetic ability. So anyway, over the course of history, these four kingdoms would come to dominate. And after this, he says that ten horns would arise out of the fourth beast, or out of Rome. And so this suggests that there's going to be a group of smaller kingdoms that would arise over some period of time after the fall of Rome. Now, some people think this is literally ten kingdoms. Uh, others believe that it's kind of an indefinitely large number because ten is a biblical number for completeness or fullness. And we really don't know, but the idea is that some groups would rule after Rome. And so what Daniel is basically saying is this. He's saying what's going to happen throughout history is you'll have these four major kingdoms that will dominate in a way that really we haven't seen before and we, haven't see, we won't see after. They'll rise and fall, and then they'll give way to a bunch of smaller kingdoms. And these kingdoms will rule in a similar way uh, over a certain amount of time. But at some point during or after these ten kingdoms, some real crazy stuff is going to go down. We are now entering the kind of end times part of this vision, the apocalypse. And during this time, a super important figure is going to arise, this little horn. The little horn is almost like central figure of this image. And we see him as this boastful and blasphemous people, person. We see him mocking God and waging war against the holy people, against Israel and God's people. And this little horn is also known as the Antichrist. This is the end times figure who kind of represents the forces of Satan and evil, uh, 
who the Bible tells us will persecute the church. In Revelation 13, he's described as a beast. But in Revelation, John is really borrowing language from Daniel 7. When you read through that chapter on the Antichrist, it's all this same language. Him being boastful, blasphemous, mocking God, waging war against the saints. And what we see is that this period of the Antichrist power is going to be bad. Uh, people are going to suffer. But ultimately it will pass. And what happens next is that God will step in. He comes in power. Uh, the little horn and the beast are defeated. Evil is destroyed and judged. And the kingdom of God arrives in full. And so God's people will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. So if that sounds like kind of a lot to digest, it is. That's thousands of years of history and things that haven't happened yet, things that have happened. And while the details are interesting, the question that we're really after as we unpack this is, why is Daniel telling us this? Why is God revealing this to Daniel in a dream? And what is it that he wants his people to understand? And to answer those questions, we really first need to zoom out a little bit. We need to kind of come back to this world that Daniel and Israel are living in at this time. So just for a second, I want you to kind of imagine, take yourself back in time, and imagine that you are an Israelite who's living in the exile. We've talked a lot about this period over the past several months. So hopefully you have a kind of an idea of what this would have been like. But to put it simply, this would have been a really, really bad time for you. Your country has been defeated by Babylon. You sat in your home and you watched this army invading, setting fire to all your favorite coffee shops and restaurants. They burned everything to the ground. They came to your house. They took you. They marched you across the world to Babylon and said, you live here now. You're our captive. And you're stuck there for." You don't know how long, maybe the rest of your life. That's pretty tough. But it's not just kind of that big picture stuff that we've talked about. You have to think about the day-to-day -day reality of being an Israelite in Babylon. Because remember, the Babylonians, they didn't know Yahweh. They didn't care about Torah or the law. And so they'd come to you and they'd bring you food and they'd say, hey, eat this. And you might say, wait, 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 no, I, you know, that's against the law of Moses. I'm really not supposed to eat that. That's really important to me that I eat things that are kosher. And they say, I don't care. You eat what we eat, or you eat nothing. And then they say, hey, we have these Babylonian deities. You have to worship them. You have to bow before them, make sacrifices to them. And you say, no, actually, you know, we have this whole thing about worshiping one God, you know, Yahweh alone, no other gods before me. And they say, I don't care. You worship our gods. You worship the king. You worship Nebuchadnezzar. Or there's consequences. Your neighbors look at you sideways for doing things different. And the threat of punishment, the threat of possible death, is always right at your doorstep. Now imagine trying to be faithful in that context. Right? Imagine how tempting it would be to just kind of throw up your hands and say, well, I guess this is the world I live in, so it would be easier if I just went along with Babylon. It would be easier for me if I didn't worry about being quite so faithful. It would be easier if I just compromised. Probably God would understand. 
But then imagine that Daniel tells you that, you know, as bad as things are right now, they're actually going to get worse. So you're going to finish your time in exile. You'll go back home to Jerusalem. You'll kind of rebuild the temple and the wall. Things will start to go back to normal. And then another guy is going to come and take over and make your life hard again. There's going to be this ruler named Antiochus, this guy under the Greek power. And he's going to be even more fanatical about you doing things a different way. That you do things the Greek way. You eat the way the Greeks eat. You dress the way the Greeks dress. You worship the gods the Greeks worship. And if you do any of the other stuff, if you don't bend your knee to the Greek way, you are going to experience serious persecution and oppression. <laughs> so, so imagine sitting in Babylon, looking at the world around you, looking at the world ahead of you. Wouldn't you begin to wonder, is it worth it? Is any of this worth it? Does it matter if I try it all, if I do anything, if I try to be faithful, if all that's going to mean is struggle and suffering? See, the world Daniel lives in and would live in is one dominated by these great earthly kings who were opposed to God. And so the easiest way to get by, the smartest way to get by was just to kiss the ring, do what you're told, even if it meant compromising faith or committing sin. To really, truly worship God, to really, truly be faithful, almost always meant real consequences. Now this background obviously is really important because it helps us understand the purpose of this vision, why God reveals what he does. See, God isn't just giving Daniel a random picture of the end times. He's not like, hey, I thought you might have been wondering how the world is going to end, so let me just show you. It has nothing to do with anything else. I just thought you might want to know. Here's how it's going to go down. These revelations are not random. They're functioning in the same way that all of the prophetic material did. God is saying, here's some truth that will help you understand your world and your situation. Here is some truth that's going to help you live through all of this. And so when you read Daniel 7 through this lens, you get a sense of the purpose of this vision of the Antichrist, this hostile, oppressive figure. And what Daniel is doing is he's trying to draw a clear parallel between the work of the Antichrist, this great end times, horrible persecutor, and rulers like the Babylonian king, rulers like Antiochus, these historical smaller persecutors. And we see how he makes this connection in the text. It's pretty clear. He calls the Antichrist the little horn in Daniel 7. And then he talks about Antiochus in Daniel 8, and he calls him a small horn. Similar language. John does something pretty similar in Revelation. He identifies the Antichrist as a beast, and then he hints at the idea of the Emperor Nero, another historical persecutor, as a beast. And both are saying, I want you to understand these earthly persecutors, these earthly kings who are making your life miserable. I want you to see them and understand them in relation to the Antichrist. They're doing the same thing. They're coming from the same source. They are playing for the same team. 
Now, before we go on, I just kind of want to say this. There are a lot of opinions on the Antichrist. Uh, some people think that he is going to be a real end times actual person. I tend to agree with that viewpoint. But I also understand the other views. Uh, some people think he's just a symbol, a, a symbolic picture of the forces of Satan and evil that is going to arise in the end. Others think that Daniel actually believed that these end-time persecutors like Antiochus, that, that he was the Antichrist. But what all of these views have in common is that Daniel wants us to understand these earthly evil rulers in relation to this greater end times picture of evil and Satan. In any interpretation, Daniel is saying that these earthly kings, these earthly kingdoms, even all these things like Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, they are all smaller players in this larger war, this larger struggle between God and Satan, God and evil. And the persecution and oppression that God's people were experiencing during this time was a glimpse, a taste, at what God's people would experience in the end. And this is a really radical idea, and it's so important for how we understand any writing about the end times. Daniel is saying that this end times war is going to play out throughout the course of history. We'll see it in the rise and fall of great, powerful, earthly kingdoms that stand against God. We see it in the actions of evil kings and power-hungry rulers. And we see it in the suffering that God's people endure every day. So what does this mean? How are we supposed to respond to this? It means that we should respond to these real-life persecutors, these historical figures like Antiochus, like Nero, those kinds of people in light of what happens next, in light of how this story ends, both in our passage and in all of history. And that brings us to the heart of this vision. This is the main thing that Daniel wants us to know about the Antichrist whether he's a real historical figure or just a symbol for Satan and evil, what is most important about him is not who he is, but where he stands in relation to God. The one thing that we know for sure about this Antichrist figure is he is going to lose. And he's going to lose big. All of his power and influence is temporary, and when God decides to act, there is no war. There's no epic confrontation, no epic battle, no end time scene where the two armies rush and fight for 20 minutes and guys die and people, it's, it's just over. God wins and it's so easy. For some reason, whenever I read about this end times battle between God and Satan, it always reminds me of a famous scene from uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And in the movie, you might remember this part, Indiana's chasing after uh, these people, and, and all of a sudden, this big old strong-looking guy steps out, and he's got a sword. And the, all the crowd kind of backs up into this circle, and everybody's watching this confrontation. And the guy with the sword does all this fancy sword stuff, and he, he looks really scary and strong. And Indy's response is, he looks almost bored, maybe a little annoyed, takes out his gun, shoots the guy, and it's done. 
Again, there's no fight. We're expecting a five-minute sword fight. He just shoots him, and it's over. This is the perfect illustration of the phrase, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. This is the way Daniel describes this final confrontation. Do not bring an antichrist to a God fight. It will not end well. There's no uncertainty. There's no question about how it's going to end. And this is not to say that the Antichrist doesn't have any power, that evil and Satan are just these weak, impotent figures. From our perspective, these men hold the world in the palm of their hands. They have exerted tremendous influence for evil in our world. But again, this is God calling us to see it from his perspective to see things as he does. God says, when I show up in power, it's it's just over. Same message that we see in the book of Revelation. Uh, In Revelation 19, you have this scene, and it almost seems like you're going to have this this Avengers-level battle, and the armies are going to charge at each other. But when the war happens, that's not what we see. Revelation chapter 19, uh, verse 19 it says, then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider, that's Jesus, on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. No war, no struggle, it's just over. One of my favorite details from Revelation 19, I I think this is meant to be funny, is right before the battle, this angel shows up, it says the angel's in the sun, and the angel calls out to the birds, and he says, come get supper. There's about to be a dead army. You guys are about to feast. This is before the battle. I mean, this is biblical smack talk. Like, these guys are about to go down. Dinner's on. Come eat these dead evil guys. This is the best. It's so certain God is going to win. No matter how you slice up the details of the end times, if you don't come away with that idea, that picture, that God wins, you have missed the point. This is what Daniel wants his readers to see. This is what God wants us to know. And in many ways, this chapter is Daniel's way of of speaking to the hearts of his people who, again, are struggling, and they're going to continue to struggle. It's his way of saying, look, I know what you're going through. I know it's hard, and look, I know it's going to get worse. I know how powerful these earthly powers seem, and I know that they're offering you an easier life, probably a more attractive life sharing in their power and beauty. And so I know how tempting it must be for you to offer your allegiance to them, to compromise faith, faith, worship, and obey these kings, these nations, these false gods. But here's the reality. All that power, all that beauty, all that authority, it's headed for the trash heap. It may as well be on the Titanic. It's going down, and it's inevitable. So be on the right team. 
Be on the right team. Be on the side whose victory is assured. When I watch football on Sunday afternoons, uh, which is most Sundays during the NFL season, a lot of times my kids will wander in and they'll sit on the couch with me. They mostly just like to watch the commercials. I don't know why. They're like, ooh, commercials. But every once in a while, they'll sit through a game with me and we'll watch together. And at some point, they'll usually ask me, hey, Dad, who are we rooting for? And my answer is almost always, well, this team, because uh, that player is on my fantasy football team. And I'll say, they'll say, what does that mean? And I say, well, I play this game where I get fake points for this uh, real life kind of game. And it means a lot to me. But really, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter at all. But this is how I watch football. I watch for my fantasy team. Grayson uses a little bit of a different criteria. He likes to focus on the colors of the jerseys. So if he sees like a team with like a cool like blue, silver color scheme, he'll be like, all right, I want that team. Or if it's like just a color he thinks is interesting, that's his choice. But Kaya is a little smarter than the two of us. And her question is always, who's winning? Who's winning the game right now? And whoever is winning, that's her team. That's the team that I'm going to root for. And this is a smart strategy. She's thinking, I want to root for the team that gives me the best chance of being happy when this game is over. And so more often than not, she's happy when the game is over, and I'm miserable because my fantasy team always loses. Daniel is saying, hey, don't root for a team because they're going to win you points in a fake contest. That doesn't mean anything. He says, don't root for the team that looks the best, that has the prettiest jerseys or has the, the most good-looking people on it. He says, root for the team that's going to win. Root for the team that's going to make you happy when the game is over. Be on the right team. And what Daniel tells us is that victory for us, to, to really win for us, is measured by our faithfulness to the guy who we know wins the real battles. Daniel is offering people a powerful motive for faithful living. But it requires that they believe this truth that they might never even see, that they might not actually experience in their lifetime. They would have to go on faith that God could win this way. And no matter what would happen in their stories, in the story that mattered, they were going to win. John makes this point explicit in Revelation. If you want just one theme from Revelation, I would say this is it. In the face of the Antichrist and all the suffering and evil he could bring, John says this in Revelation 13.10. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. He says, look, I, I can't guarantee you anything in this life. If you're going to get captured, you're going to get captured. If you're going to get killed, you're going to get killed. But there is a greater victory that I can promise you. And the only way to be sure that you're going to win that victory is to be faithful, is to endure through all of this and stick with God. Be on the right team no matter what. Now, I think this is a powerful message. 
But I also think for a lot of us, sometimes it, it feels kind of extreme. In the world we live in today, choosing sides, being on the right team no matter what, I don't know, it, it doesn't quite resonate like it did for them. For one thing, most of us don't face death. We don't face any real legitimate persecution. We don't have to choose between our faith and our lives. But at the same time, I do think that this passage is relevant for us. It speaks to our lives in important ways. At the end of the day, we have to acknowledge that there is a war taking place. Whether we want to admit it or not, whether we can always see it or not, there's good and evil. There's God and Satan. Satan isn't just some fairy tale that the Bible made up to keep us in line. He's real. He's evil, and he exerts power in our world. He exerts influence over our institution, over people who are in power. And until Jesus returns, that's our reality. And the point for us isn't to go around labeling everything we don't like as satanic. It's not to separate ourselves from anything that seems evil or seems like it might be bad. The point is simply to make sure that we, us, me personally, that I am on the right team. The point is to make sure that we're not spending our lives trying to win a game that doesn't matter for a team that is ultimately going to lose. The point is to make sure we don't choose a team that just looks the best from the outside, that seems shiny and attractive from our perspective. The point is that we have to be careful of always living in this gray area where our allegiance to God can coexist with our allegiance to a bunch of things that God says are not good, that God says are not of him, that God says are going down. This passage is a call to live with real conviction. And conviction is something that I think a lot of us don't think about. Real loyalty, real commitment to place our loyalty to God above our loyalty to anything else. And we have to understand that following Jesus sometimes has a cost. And we have to be willing to pay that cost. And that's going to look different for everyone. I'm hesitant to list the things that you should be convicted about. But what we do know is that Jesus calls us to pursue his ethic of love for God and love for people. He says, that's what it means to follow me. That's what it means to walk with me. That's what it means to be on my team. And he says, if you do that, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross. You might lose your life to gain your life. These passages are a reminder of the same thing that Daniel's saying, that following Jesus requires conviction, a rugged commitment to the values of Christ. It's a reminder that there is going to be pushback. If we're faithful, there should be consequences. It might be something as simple as mockery or a little bit of financial sacrifice, our lives not being as comfortable as we hoped them to be. 
It might be something bigger like persecution, oppression, or poverty, maybe even death. The point is that the, those are costs that we might have to pay. And when I read passages like this, it's not that I, I want to pay those, but I want to be willing to pay them. I actually want to have that kind of faith, that if that's what it cost me, that I'm willing to ride or die for Team Jesus. Because in the end, God wins. And when we believe that, when we trust that that's the reality, even though we can't see it, even though it doesn't always feel like it's true, we can have confidence, we can have that assurance that it's going to be worth it to follow Jesus. Let's pray.